Well, good morning, everybody. And uh, turn in your Bibles with me, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And that's where I will be uh, this morning. Um, I want to welcome everyone here uh, as we begin our sermon series on the end times. Over the next 10 sermons, I will be preaching um, about what God has to say to us who are His church, His bride, so that we don't have to fear. The thing is that uh, God wants to make sure that as the world goes through all of the tribulations that will occur here, that His people, God has already promised, and we'll go be going up today, what He's going to do with us as Christians before the great tribulation. And it will be upon us one day. It could be tomorrow. It could be today. It could be 20 years from now or 100 years from now. I personally believe, like every believer that has ever lived, that it will happen in our lifetime. You know, this morning I appreciate so much the the selection of music that we did, and and those who know me, I, I'm the I'm the guy who grew up in the '60s with Led Zeppelin and and uh, Deep Purple and Jethro Tull, and, and they're like, who the heck are those people? And so I I, I was a rocker and uh, loved all that stuff. And when I first met my bride, and she was going to a small Southern Baptist church. And the first time I heard what I thought she told me was music, I was like completely caught off guard. I said, honey, that is not music. Matter of fact, there was a group called the Tuttles. And I, and I first I thought I was excited I'm going to hear the Turtles. Okay? <laughs> okay, I know only half the group got that. But uh, it turned out that it was this uh, uh, country gospel that I, I thought I'd never heard anything worse in my life. And... Uh, <laughs> But I have come to appreciate what God has done through His people and the music and the lyrics that have been written. And when you heard that last hymn uh, that we sang today, I remember when Pastor Cal came to me with the notion back in, around Thanksgiving that we wanted to have a night of giving God Thanksgiving. And when they sang that song, I preached in Psalm 31 that night. I couldn't help but think about thinking about God's glory. And this morning when Kathy and I, and we come up here early on Sunday mornings, uh, we were driving up here about 6.30 this morning, and the sun was just creeping over in the east, and, and uh, turn on to 360 off of Chula, and you see that glow, and I thought, praise God, I'm allowed to come to be with God's people every Sunday morning to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that, that not just that this day, that God sets aside for Sunday for His people to come and to praise His holy name. And that's what we get to do each and every Sunday is remember the resurrection of our Lord. And why is that so important? It, it's because God wants to instruct us to not live lives of fear. When I was a younger man, and I can remember in being in high school and I was an athlete in school and and I remember when the first time that a, one of my coaches told me that, you know, I didn't smoke. I was blessed. My dad didn't smoke, so I never took it up. And, um, and, and I always thought it was kind of the first time that somebody gave me a cigarette, smoked it, I got sick, and I'm going, you guys are stupid. Uh, oh, just keep smoking until you get used to it. Oh, oh, oh how about I don't? <laughs> and um, so I didn't. And I thank God for those small little <laughs> things in my life. But I remember that coach coming and taking a hanky out in, in P class, guys, and I remember this. Uh, we used to have smoking places when I went to high school. You could actually go outside and smoke on a stoop. And uh, 
And so the PE teacher grabs a cigarette, and he says, this is why you don't smoke. He takes a huff on it, takes a little white handkerchief, and he blows through it, and it was brown. And he goes, you see that? That's what gets on your lungs. You can't run. Okay, that was good enough for me. Coach said not to, I didn't do it. So I was blessed that I had people in my life that I, that I took it. And I always thought it was hilarious when people started suing the tobacco companies for uh, cigarettes and they didn't know it was bad for them. Really? We all knew it was bad for them. We just chose to do it anyway. And, uh, and I know that, that there's a whole history there and everything else. But I'm telling you, we have been warned. We are warned uh, as young adults. Don't eat that garbage. Mom and Dad tell you all the time, quit eating that crap, Right. And what do we do? Well, it tastes so good, Mom. We love donuts. We love candy. We love all that stuff. Well, the problem is it catches up to you. And if, you know, how many of you have been to your doctor and he looks at you and he goes, Hey, uh, I just want to let you know, and he said this to me, uh, Mark, you need to lose some weight. Matter of fact, you need to lose about 50 pounds. And I'm looking at him like, uh, Thanks, Doc. I could have went all day without hearing that. He said, Well, here's the problem. He said, you, you're, you've got high blood pressure, and that comes from genetics. We already know that. We've talked about that. You're on high blood pressure medicine. Your cholesterol is high now. And do you realize the first year he told me that, it was about three years ago, he said, your, high, your blood pressure uh, is up and, and your cholesterol is high. And, uh, and let me tell you, you've just increased your chance of stroke by 15% at your age. And I went, well, that's not too bad. That's 85% chance I won't get it. <laughs> So anyway, hey, I'm the guy that, remember, thought accidents would never happen to me. It happened to the other guy. And so the next year he comes in and it's still high. He says, Mark, I just want to let you know your, increase, your, your chance increased to 25%. I went, okay, now I got a C or a D. So I, I better start paying attention. So I started taking cholesterol medicine. Kathy and I decided we were going to lose some weight. I lost 50 pounds. Um, and doctor was, you know, everybody wants to go back to the doctor after he tells you lose weight and you do it. Except you walk in there and it was a different nurse and she's usually there. And she looked at me and she goes, step on a scale. I said, you're not going to look at me and say I'm not as big as I was? Uh, I was so disappointed. But anyway, <laughs> um, always looking for man's praise, aren't we? But the fact of the matter is we get all these, we get everybody telling us you're going to pay the consequences if you don't do what's healthy for you. You're going to pay the consequence. And we go, okay. But God is more concerned over your spiritual condition than he is your health condition. And don't get me wrong, he's, considered, he, he's concerned about that, and we should be taking care of these bodies that God gives us. This is the only body you're going to get, and it's deteriorating. It's, it's from the inside out, we are deteriorating, and we are not the same person we were five years ago or ten years ago. And I know, young person, you're sitting there thinking, well, that old guy's up there talking about that stuff. I'm in the prime of my life. And praise God that you are, or you're going to be there. But take care of what God's given you. And he wants to warn us also, more importantly, about your spiritual condition. He's more concerned that where this body's going to die. We're all going to die. And then what happens once we die? Yesterday I had the privilege of, of co-officiating a, a sermon, I mean a funeral for Luther. Luther Cyprus was a member, a faithful member of our church. Uh, he, they came here in 2017. He, within a year, he was a deacon here. Man, loved the Lord, uh, loved talking about Jesus. And you know what? Someone came up to me today that went there yesterday and said to me, one of our members said this. He said, Pastor, it was the first funeral I ever went to that I didn't learn a bunch of other nonsense about somebody. I thought for a second. I went, he goes, did you notice that everybody talked, when you guys talked about Luther, all you talked about was his love for the Lord. 
He wrote a letter. And in that letter, he said to people, he said, if I have hurt you or offended you, please forgive me. I have never been to a funeral where somebody has asked the people to come to forgive him. He said, if I have not done something I should have done, please forgive me. If I have not said what I should have said, please forgive me. He says, I know I will carry none of this into the next when I go home to be with my Lord. I know none of this will follow me there. But what a gracious and humble man whose desire was to ask for forgiveness for those he might have hurt. To not carry in their bitterness. You don't get that way just because you show up on a church on a Sunday morning. It's because you have a life that's dedicated to Him. And Christians for 2,000 years have lived that life for Christ. Faithful Christians. You who have been called to be His, you have been called to be faithful. There's not an option for you. <laughs> there's, not, there's not a fast lane that you go in and a short lane you go in. It's, it's the fast lane God puts you in. He puts you in that lane to serve Him. And you can go whatever pace you want to go in that lane. But He calls you to do that. He doesn't call you to go on all these side ventures that somehow seem to distract us from the mission that God has called each of us to do. And with that said, that involves persecution and heartache. And for 2,000 years, the church has been persecuted, whether it was start with the Romans or the Catholics, Roman Catholics during the Reformation period, or the Nazis during their reign, or the communists, or the Islamic terrorists, or even Islamic nations. God has never left one Christian without love and hope. Never. Whether it was the... The, in the Roman Colosseum, when Christians were being torn limb from limb by wild beasts, or they were set on fire by Nero to light up his garden, or whether during the Reformation when men and women were killed just for being baptized, that men and women were being slaughtered for, for, for not following what the Roman Catholic Church said they should be doing, when men were put to death because they wrote the Bible in English so they could, so the common man could understand what was being said. For those 2,000 years and until this very day, there are people around this country and around the world who are suffering at the cause of Christ. But Psalms 91 speaks of that. He who abides in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to Yahweh, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the destructive pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions and under His wings you will take refuge. His truth is a large shield and a bulwark. You will not be afraid of terror by night or arrow that flies by day, or pestilence that moves in darkness, or a destruction that devastates at noon. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousands at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made Yahweh my refuge, the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, and no plagues will come near your tent. Wow, Pastor, but that, that can't be true, because... We know Christians that have suffered and died. That's not, this is what's talking about right here is that evil will not be around you into the se sense that it will take away your salvation. 
You have nothing to fear when you are in Christ. No matter what comes our way, no matter what sickness, no matter what pandemic comes, no matter what enemy comes against us, we are secure in our salvation. Yes, you may lose your life, but there's no fear for the Christian. If you're not a Christian today, you need to fear. And this today is a warning to you. You need to understand As I begin this sermon series in the end times, the title of this sermon is Going, Going, Gone. About the rapture. Some of you have your notion of what you've heard about it. I I pray that today when you leave here, you'll have a clear biblical understanding of what the rapture is. You see, it's, it's important for us as Christians to know this. To know this so that we don't despair and that we have hope. So if you turn your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you would stand with me if you're able, we will read God's Word from starting in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you shall not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring him with Him those who have fallen asleep In Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Father, we are comforted. And thank you so much, Father, that you loved us enough to send your Son to die for us. And Father, not only that, but you promise His return. Lord, we have the promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us. We belong to you. And so for my brothers and sisters, Father, I rejoice with them and we give you thanks and glory for that. I pray this morning that your children would find comfort in the words preached this day by this mere man. I pray, Father, that as we are comforted by these words, we would have a, a, a desire to make sure that those that we know that don't know Christ would come to saving faith. And Lord, for those that are listening to the sound of my voice this very day, or maybe watching this in sometime distant future, or in here in this room, Lord, those who don't know You, their future is bleak. And Father, I pray that today You would reveal who Your Son is to them. That You remove scales from their eyes, turn a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. We ask all of this in the precious name of Your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So what is the rapture? Today I will answer some questions for you. We will answer the following questions in the next hour. What is the rapture? Why does it occur? Who is involved? And when does it occur? Now for those waiting for the when, I'm not going to give you a date and time. Okay? So if you want to get up and leave now, you can. But that's not what that's about. So we'll get that in just a minute. And uh, I really appreciate Brother Zach will be up here tonight and he'll be preaching. I'm looking forward to that as he preaches. Uh, And after that, we will have a time where uh, you can ask questions about that sermon. If, If you so desire, you can ask questions about this sermon as well. Uh, tonight as well, but but uh, we'll focus on Zach's sermon first. So anyway, what is the rapture? 
So today, I start with the rapture of the church. When we gather again, I will start with the seven years of tribulation. I will spend five weeks going over the tribulation period. That's when the Antichrist and the false prophet will reign. That's when a pact, peace pact will be made with Israel. That's when the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, and the seven bowl judgments from God will be poured upon the earth. That's the, the great evil that will occur like the world has never seen will happen during that seven years. Then we will talk about the second coming of Christ. And after the second coming of Christ, we will talk about what happens to Satan and what happens to the false prophet and what happens to all those who followed the Antichrist during those seven years. And then we'll talk about those Christians who become believers during the, uh, during the tribulation period as they move into the millennial period of the thousand-year reign of Christ where you and I and every other believer will join Christ and rule for a thousand years. And at the end of that thousand years when Satan is released the one last time and then they rebel again, and God puts final stop to that and He creates a new heaven and a new earth and then there will be the final judgment. We'll go over all of that. You should have a clear understanding and nothing foggy at the end of these ten sermons that I proclaim to you. It's not a mystery, folks, like it was in the Old Testament. It is revealed to us so that we will not be in fear. And it begins with the rapture. But let me first say to you, you're not going to find that word in the, in the, in the Bible. Rapture is not there. The term comes from the Latin word meaning a carrying off, a transport, or a snatching away. The concept of the carrying off or the rapture of the church is clearly, though, taught in Scripture. The rapture of the church is the event in which God snatches away all believers from the earth in order to make way for His righteous judgment to be poured on the earth during the tribulation period. So, for example, if the rapture occurred today, everybody who professes Jesus as Lord and Savior, gone. In a twinkling of an eye, gone. We're gone. And they walk in the room, they go, where'd they go? Have you ever done that with your kids? You walk in there like, where'd they go? Sometimes you wish they went somewhere. Just kidding. No, I'm not. Anyway, so... But that's what's going to that's what's going to happen. Going to be gone. How the world explains it, it's not my business, not my concern. I'm not going to be here. Neither are you if you're a child of the King. The rapture church is that event that that we uh, we should be prepared for and praying for. The rapture is described primarily here in First Thessalonians chapter four, thirteen through eighteen. But it's also for those taking notes, and you should be taking notes. And what I would encourage you to do is go back and listen to this over. Because I'm going to go uh, not as fast as I did in the first service, but you'll, you're going to miss some references. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 50 through 54. They are the two primary verses in Scripture that we go to in reference to the rapture of the church. God will resurrect at that time all believers who have died and give them glorified bodies. And take them from the earth along with all living believers who will also be given glorified bodies at the time. So what happens? You have those who have already died in Christ. They're buried. They're cremated. They've been chopped up in little pieces during persecution. They have been burned at the stake. They've had their heads cut off. Their hands removed. Their feet removed. And I've always asked people, say, well, pastor, 
uh, I'm not going to get cremated. And I say, well, why not? And they say, because God won't be able to find my body. <laughs> Wait a minute. Let me, let me get this straight. The one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who orchestrates every atom and control of every atom there is, the one who gives me the very breath, somehow is going to misplace Markwell's DNA. No, folks, don't worry about that. I always say to people, have you ever thought about what happens to you when you go in the ground? That's before there was embalming and when they just used to bury people the same day, put them in a little wooden box. You've watched your westerns. They put them in a little box. They put them six feet under and they drop them in a hole and cover it up. Guess what happens to that body in that box? It rots away. And those little worms come in and they carry stuff away. God's still going to find your body. Because it's not dependent upon us, it's dependent upon God. And so those who have died in Christ, God will give them the resurrected body. So what happened to, all, what happened to you when you died then? Pastor, am I sleeping somewhere in a grave? Am, is it a cemetery? You know, we get the name cemetery. It's like a hotel for the dead. We just got to... No, no. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The minute, the second, that last breath comes out of your mouth, you're with the Lord. Kathy and I were down in at Duke, and my first, uh, my oldest son's first wife, Chantel, had cystic fibrosis. Came to Saving Faith through the Ministry of Grace Harvest. Uh, baptized believer, and we were down there. Kathy and I uh, were down there when she died. One of the hardest things I've seen a lot of death in my life, a lot of it, a lot of evil death in my life. But as I lay there and watched Chantel for three hours struggling to breathe at 24, 25 years of age. She had a lung transplant the year before. And as she's struggling to breathe, every moment I'm thinking, Lord, take her. Take her home. And that last breath, when that last breath left her body, God took her home. No more lack of breath for Chantel. No more hearing people make criticize her for parking a handicapped spot. A, a young, beautiful woman, if you would look at her and you think there's nothing wrong with her, people would yell at her and cuss at her for taking a handicapped spot. I tell you what, it changed my attitude about that. I don't say a word now. You could run from a handicapped spot. I'm not saying nothing to you. But that child went home to be with her Lord and Savior and one day she will get her glorified body. The same way every believer that we know, my dear friend Chuck and his Luther has gone home to be with the Lord and many, 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 many men and women have gone home that we know and love. Their spirits are with Christ. They're not waiting to, to, to relish in the presence of the Lord. They are there. They're waiting for that time that they're given their glorified bodies. They're waiting for that end time when Jesus comes back to collect His church. Let me read it again. Look down at verse 16 with me of this, chap of this chapter I just read. Verse 4, I was, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel and with a trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first and after that we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Glory! Think about that, Christian. 
If you're alive right now and think of somebody that you love who's home with the Lord now, and that trumpet sounds, their bodies are resurrected and they are given their glorious new body and you are raised from this life where you are now living and you are supernaturally snatched up and you're given your glorified bodies and you will meet every other believer that has ever lived during the church age, during the, ever since Christ died on that cross. And anybody who's put their faith in trust, the bride of Christ will be resurrected. And you will meet those people. Can you imagine what a glorious moment that will be? The rapture will involve an instantaneous transformation of our bodies to fit us for eternity. These bodies were not made for eternity once, once we sinned. This body, just, I can tell you. I put a thing on Facebook the other day. Uh, 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 I did it to the song of Perfect, and it matches Kathy and I kind of because we fell in love when we were young. And I, I put a picture of my beautiful bride up there. She, that picture that you'll see, you can go look at Facebook right now, right now but later on. Please don't look at it now. 16 years old, that was my beauty at 16. And then you see her at 20 when I married her. And then the picture at the beach on our honeymoon. And then the real skinny little guy with a little mustache and a green uniform standing next to this beautiful woman. I was 23 and she was 22. And you look at those pictures and you go, man, Pastor Mark, you really look old now. Well, the truth is that's what happens to all of us, right? Our bodies, they're not the same as they were. And yet inside as the outward man is dying, the inward man is being renewed Day by day. People ask me all the time, Pastor, why are you so excited about dying? I, I'm not excited about dying. I'm excited about being with my Lord. I want to use every day that He gives me for His glory. The passion that I have because of the love that Christ has for me. I, I'm, I, I, I can't be quiet about it. I can't shut up about it. This is the way God has made me. I would have been a terrible Puritan pastor. I can tell you that right now. Make me stay in one spot and not use my hands. I don't know what would have happened. The rapture will involve this instantaneous transformation of our bodies for eternity. The rapture is not, though, however, please, to be confused with the second coming of Christ. Sometimes it's a confusing concept. We, we, they think, well, does the rapture happen when Jesus comes back? No, no. The second coming is when Jesus comes back to defeat Satan and his armies. The rapture occurs in the air. And I'll explain this in a little bit greater detail in a, in, towards the end of the sermon. At the rapture, the Lord comes and meets us in the clouds. At the second coming, Zechariah chapter 14, Zechariah chapter 14 verses 3 and 4 tells us that the Lord descends all the way to the earth to stand on the Mount of Olives, resulting in a great earthquake followed by the defeat of God's enemies. So that's the second coming. In the rapture, He meets us in the air. In the second coming, He plants His feet on the Mount of Olives. The doctrine of the rapture was not taught in the Old Testament. Why? They had no clue what, what it was and what it was coming. Which is why Paul calls it a mystery now revealed. I love it, folks. We're on this side of the cross. And do you realize all the things that the Old Testament saints did not know, even the prophets of God did not know? God has blessed you with that knowledge. And if you're outside the faith, these are still a mystery to you. It's confusing to you. You may be sitting here, boy, this, Pastor Mark believes in a bunch of fairy tales. But because we belong to Him, and God has given us peace through His Word to know Him, and He comforts us with this thing, 
see, you've got to understand something. Paul has a pastor's heart here. And he's writing to the church here because he loves them and he knows that some of them are struggling with those who have died and they're afraid they missed the rapture. And so he's writing to them to comfort them. And so that's the main jest behind this, but we get the benefit of God's grace and mercy to the church in Thessalonica that Paul writes as this pastor that we get clear teaching on the rapture. So why does it occur? Why does it occur? We looked at what is the rapture. Now let's look at why does it occur. And I want to give you three reasons today, three reasons for the rapture. The first purpose of the rapture will be to rescue the church from the Antichrist persecution. That's the first reason it will rescue the church from the Antichrist uh, persecution. Matthew chapter 24. Excuse me. Matthew chapter 24, verse 22. And if, if those days had not been cut short... No one would be saved. But for sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Matthew chapter 24, verse 22. And so God has said, I am going to protect my church from the Antichrist persecution. It will be a persecution like the world has never seen. There will be countless death of God's people during that time. The world will hate you. Folks, the world hates us now. The world hate, and you see it, the visceral attacks that are occurring now that you would have never thought would have occurred 10, 20, even 5 years ago, and definitely not 50 years ago, or are out in the open where Christians are accused of hate speech and, and fear-mongering and every, everything else under the sun. It won't be long before they start taking Christians and making them be quiet and not say what the Bible has to say. They're already doing that. And Christian, we must stand for the truth. We must love those who would hate us. This doesn't give you permission to pick up a gun and shoot them. As they hate us and persecute us, we are to love them and to pray for them, knowing that God ultimately has your back. So the second purpose for the rapture will be to give all New Testament saints their glorified bodies. The first is to protect us from the Antichrist. The second is for us to receive our glorified bodies. We need to get our glorified bodies. There's five resurrections talked about in Scripture. Five. The first one. Everybody knows the first one. If you don't, I'll tell you. It was Jesus. Okay? He was the first resurrection and and uh, got His glorified body. And so Jesus is the first. The second, the second resurrection is now, what I'm talking about now. It's the rapture of the church. That's the second resurrection. Our spirits are with the Lord. Our bodies will be resurrected, those who have died first. And let me share something with you as well today. And grasp this, please. You are either either going to be dead and with Christ or alive when He returns. You are not going into the tribulation period. You are not coming out of the tribulation period as a human as you know yourself and enter into the millennial kingdom. That is only for the saints that get saved during the tribulation period. So there could be a young person in this room right now who doesn't know Christ as Savior. God comes back a year from now, two years from now. We're gone. That person, because they've heard you talk about the love of Christ, who He is, comes to saving faith. That person, if he survives through the seven years of tribulation, 
through the wrath of God poured out upon the earth, about the Antichrist killing Christians, that person will enter into the millennial kingdom and live. We will not. We won't be here to do that. We come back with the Lord at the second coming. Now the third purpose, and we have to have glorified bodies to do that. So the first purpose is to to avoid the Antichrist persecution. The second purpose is to get our glorified bodies. And the third purpose for the rapture is to remove the church from the earth before the day of the Lord's wrath. Seven seals, seven trumpets. That's S-E-A-L-S. Seven trumpets and seven bowls. These judgments will be poured out on this planet during that seven years. Hold on, we'll get to all of those and I'll explain all of them to you. If you don't know Christ, it will horrify you. If you know Christ, you can rest in the peace that you won't be here. So we are, we are, the rapture, the reason for the rapture, why does it occur? Antichrist persecution will be avoided, glorified bodies, and the day of the Lord's wrath will not come upon His church, the bride. You are His bride. Don't forget it. He died for you, bride. You are His bride. He loves you and He's going to take care of you. It is done so that believers do not have to go through all of that tribulation period. Who is involved in this, the rapture of the church? 1 Thessalonians 4.13 we read, But we do not, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. You see, Christian, when you came to saving faith in Christ, God sealed you and you are His child. And we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we are church family. We are His family. We are all His bride and He will take care of us. If you don't know Christ as Savior, you have no hope today. That's what He's talking about here. Why does He say that that He doesn't want you to to, to, to worry about it and, and, and not to grieve as others who do not have hope. Who's he talking about? The others who don't have hope. The ungodly. When a person dies without Christ and doesn't know Christ, this is the only heaven he will ever experience. Because one day at the end of, of time, at the end of that thousand year reign of, of Christ here on the earth in the millennial period, his body or her body will be resurrected and he will given and she will be given an eternal body to suffer in hell forever. But as long as you have breath in your lungs, God is calling you to him now. Reject the world's lie. Fall before him. Bend the knee before Jesus and say, Jesus, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I, I cannot save myself, God. I've tried it. I'm going through the motions in life. I think that I'm a good person and you won't condemn me for being good. But the Bible says if you commit one sin, you've broken them all. And God is a just God. And God, as I said yesterday, when it was my time to share on hope, I also give a warning. Because there's hope for us. But the warning is that God is just. And He demands justice against sin. 
He demands justice against your sin, that one lie you've ever told. And we know we have done far, far worse than that. We can look at somebody else and say, well, I'm not a child molester. I'm not a rapist. I'm not a murderer. And yet God reminds us in Matthew, remember on the Sermon on the Mount, you have said that that you shall not murder and you are right. But let me tell you, if you've ever hated somebody, you've murdered them. That's the way God looks at us. He looks at our heart. We look at the outward man. God looks at the heart. So all of us fall short of the glory of God. And so God said, I will have mercy on you. Just cry out to me. Believe that my son Jesus died for your sins. I sent him to this earth to be born of a virgin, to know no sin, to be the perfect sacrifice, fully God and fully man at the same time. He had to be God in order to be perfect. And he had to be man to die on a cross and suffer for our sins. And when Christ did that on that cross, when He hung naked on that tree and He cried, Tetelestai, it is finished. And at that moment when He breathed His last and gave His Spirit back unto the Lord, at that moment when He did that, He defeated Satan. And all of us who cry out to Him and say, God, Your Son died for me. I believe He did it just for me if nobody else. And it's not my righteousness, it's your son's righteousness. It's his blood that covers my sin, not my own. I can't do anything to earn it. And at that moment, God shows you mercy. He takes away the justice that you deserve. He takes away the hell and damnation that you deserve for sinning against him. And he says, my son has paid your price. And then we confess him as Lord and Savior. And the Bible says now, what does Jesus tell us to do? If you want to follow me. Deny yourself more. Take up your cross and follow me daily. I've done it all for you. You did nothing to earn your salvation. Now show the world that you belong to me. Do not be ashamed of my name. Be proud that you are a child of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. See, the problem with too many of us, we live our lives like, hey, Jesus, you're okay in my back pocket and I'll bring you out when I need you. How many people in your own life don't even know that you're a Christian? Shame on us. Have you ever been in this position? Pastor Mark walks up to you. And, and you tell me, Pastor, would you please pray for my cousin John or my, my Aunt Mary? Would you pray for me that they're, they're going through this? And the first question, everybody knows what I'm going to say. The first question I ask them is, are they a believer? Because I'm more concerned with their spiritual soul than I am their health. And I will pray for their health. But I want to know if I need to pray for their salvation. And you know how many times, more times than I like to admit, you know what the person comes back to me and says? I don't know. Shame on us, Christian. Shame on us that we would seek the physical healing of somebody before the spiritual salvation of that soul. It should be a warning and a challenge to us to live a life that is sold out to Christ. You ever wonder when you watch these idiots on TV that are running through the streets and burning down buildings and screaming, death to capitalism, death to policemen, death to everybody. They're they're convicted, ain't they? They run up and down the street. They believe what they're saying. We Christians, are we convicted? Do we believe what God tells us to do? Folks, it should be a wake-up call to us every time that we study the end times of what am I doing in the present time. Flip over in your Bibles, please, to chapter 1. And I was cautioned in the first service when a pastor, if you're going to tell us to flip, please wait. 
So I'll wait. One, two, three. First Thessalonians, chapter uh, first. First Thessalonians, chapter one. First Thessalonians, chapter one, verse nine and ten. For they themselves report about us what kind of an entrance we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the wrath of God. So when Paul wrote this to the epistles, these Thessalonians had been in Christ a very short time. They had come out of paganism. They had, they had come from worshiping their gods through prostitutes in the temples. They had, they had sacrificed things to, to, to demons. They, had, they were living a life of debauchery and all about themselves. And here they are. They have come to Christ. God, he's, Paul's saying that you have been rescued from the wrath to come. You have been rescued from the wrath to come. Why would he tell them that? Because they will not go through the wrath to come. Christian, you will not go through the wrath to come. God will protect His church, His bride. They also knew that about that from the day of the Lord. Turn with me back over to chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1 through 3. Now concerning the times of the seasons, brothers, you have no need of anything to be written to you. So Paul's saying, hey, when is it? they're all saying, when is this going to happen? For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, the destruction will come upon them suddenly like a labor pains upon a woman who is pregnant and they will never escape. The time is now for your salvation. Not, not in a future date, Christian. Excuse me, non-believer. But they still, these folks still were concerned. They seemed to have been afraid that they had missed the rapture since the persecution they were suffering. Back in chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. We won't read it for the sake of time. But back in 3, 3 through 4, it talks about the persecution. Caused some to fear that the, they were in the day of the Lord. They thought they were in the time of the tribulation. But the persecution they were experiencing was not that associated with the tribulation or the day of the Lord. It was merely the persecution that all believers can expect and that Paul had warned this church about it in chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. You see, there are some who believe, and they are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we will disagree on our eschatology, but they somehow, they, and I won't go into a whole lot of detail of this, they don't believe that the tribulation... Well, it's going to happen. They believe it already happened in 70 A.D. when the temple was there. I think that's... I don't see how they can stand on that argument, especially when you haven't seen a third of the population of the world destroyed. You haven't seen a third of the oceans dried up. You haven't seen a third of the forest burnt to the ground. You haven't seen any of this occur. But see, they will tell you that's all figurative. Well, I'm sorry... I take the literal interpretation of Scripture when I open up the book of God and where something is obviously a, a, a figure of speech like the windows of heaven, I understand that. But when Jesus says, I created the world, when God says, I created the world in six days, I believe He created in six days. There's no reason to doubt Him. If God could put the stars in place, He could create anything He wants to. 
And and when it says that Christ will reign for a thousand years, the millennium, I'm sorry, I believe it's going to be a thousand years. I don't believe it's a figure of speech. When he says there's 144,000 evangelists that will go out, 12,000 from each tribe, I believe there'll be 12,000 from each tribe that will go out. I believe that. When Jesus said, I will be in, in the, I will destroy this temple and build it back up in three days, I believe that. Christian, God lays it out for us. It is the church will always experience persecution until the day that He raptures us out. But it will never be like what will it be in the seven years of tribulation. The Thessalonians knew that the rapture came at the end of tribulation. Persecution would not have caused them. If, if, excuse me. This is the reason, uh, one of the reasons why the Thessalonians didn't believe that the rapture came at the end of the tribulation. Um, because persecution would not have caused them to fear that they had missed it. Because they were already in it. Instead, the persecution would have been a cause of joy, not concerned if they thought the rapture would occur after their persecution. They were afraid they missed it because they thought the, uh, the rapture would occur first. But, but the great concern of the Thessalonians was a, about those who had died. And this is what true Christians think about. They're always thinking about other people. And so they lost people. People came to Christ. Mothers, fathers, husbands, children came to Christ. And, and they were worried that, did they miss it? Would they miss the rapture altogether? Would they become some kind of second-class citizen in heaven? Would they not get a glorified body because they missed the rapture? And Paul is reassuring here that nobody's missed it. It hasn't occurred yet. And so we need to understand that, that, that what about you today? How do you live your life? And how would you live your life? And how should you live your life if you thought the rapture was going to happen today? Or tomorrow. So you see, Christian, we don't know when it's going to happen and we're called to live our lives for Him. It will come, that day will come as a thief in the night. So who is raptured? The dead in Christ will be first. We're told 14. Jesus will bring back every believer that has died. All believers who are alive at the time of the rapture will be raptured up. Now let me clarify something. The Old Testament saints will not be raptured up at this time. Or, excuse me, they will not be given their glorified bodies. This is for the church. We are the bride of Christ. He's coming back for His bride. The Old Testament saints are not the bride. They are not the church. We are. Now they, we will be in heaven with them and they will get their glorified bodies. They, the Old Testament saints will get it at the end of the tribulation period when the Lord comes back. Our glorified bodies will be imperishable. They'll be honorable and they'll be powerful. Our, our new bodies will no longer have the, the, these natural bodies, but spiritual bodies. No longer focused upon the natural senses, but one with the Holy Spirit. But let me make it clear. You will have a body. We, we will see Jesus as He was. We will see Jesus as He was. And we'll finally... Won't have to look in the mirror and say, do I look good today, honey? Everybody, <laughs> everybody will have a perfect glorified body. There will be no jealousy. There will be no envy. There will be no sin. 
Can you imagine actually walking up to somebody and saying hi to them and you don't have to worry about what they're thinking about you? Our new bodies will be honorable in that they will not be shamed or shameful because of sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing they felt was what? Shame. The first thing they felt was shame because of their nakedness. We know that from Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 and 7. God said, why are you hiding from me? You didn't hide from me before. Why you hide I, I, I kind of equate it to my two St. Bernards. They go run around the house. They ain't got no clothes on. They don't hide from me. They run up to me. Hey, good morning, good morning. When you go feed me? They don't really talk. I was, that's... <laughs> But I, I don't think about them. They're just dogs in, 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 in their natural state where God made them. And that's the way Adam and Eve felt. This is where they were. And all of a sudden, they knew the difference. They knew the difference between good and evil. And they felt shame. They felt shame. I once thought, and I have corrected my thinking on this by Scripture... I once thought that we would be as they were because we would be without sin. I thought, well, one day, well, they were without sin and we're going to be on a new earth one day. Will we just be in our all natural? Will we just walk around as, because nobody's going to have any sinful thoughts? And I remember saying that to a ladies' Bible study probably about 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And you know what they came up to me and said? Pastor, you don't tell a bunch of old ladies that we're going to be naked. <laughs> you don't tell that to old men either. But after careful study of the Scripture, I believe that Scripture clearly teaches that we will be clothed. Here we go. I look at examples in Scripture. First, angels who appear as humans are always clothed in the Bible, such as the angel was in Matthew chapter 28, verse 3. The resurrected Jesus was clothed. Those described in the Bible as being in heaven are clothed. For example, Revelation 4.4 notes the 24 elders at the throne of God wearing white clothing. The martyrs in heaven in Revelation 6.11 are given clothing in heaven. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer before God comes back at the second coming. The great multitude from every nation who will worship Jesus in the heavens are described as clothed. From Revelation chapter 7, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Revelation 7, 9. Those in the new heaven and the new earth and the new heavenly city at the end of time with the Lord are described as clothed. That's us eventually. Eventually you realize that when God destroys this earth and the heavens that He created, He will create a new heaven and a new earth. You're not floating around the cloud playing a harp. You are in your glorified bodies. You will be living on the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, and you will worship God for all eternity. Those in new heaven and new earth and new heavenly city at the end of time with the Lord are described as clothed at that time. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may, be, may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. God is so generous to us and all we deserve is death and hell and He sent His Son to die for you so that you could have eternal life with Him. What does He demand from you in return? Does He ask for your firstborn? Does He ask you to, 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 to do heinous things for Him? No. You know what He asks of you? To be sold out for Him. To love Him. 
to know that He is the God who loves you and worships you. That's what we do on Sunday mornings and every day of the week, I pray, Christian. Why do I encourage fathers to spend time with their wives and their children having a, have a time of worship? There's nothing but garbage on television. We all know that. It just got worse and worse and worse over the years. And, and, and daddies, how many of you sit down and open up the book and read to your children? How many of you take a Bible story, the young ones, and tell them the magnificent Bible stories that are in Scripture? How many of you tell about the love of Christ, that He's that all the things He's done for you? How, how, tell them tell them the love story about you and your wife and how you've grown in Christ, and then you and then you then you worship. And if you can't sing, dads, put on a CD or something or Spotify, or whatever you do, whatever you do now. Kathy, I've never sung to Kathy. When I do, she just kind of runs in the other room and the dogs start howling. <laughs> but worship Him. Worship Him. Our earthly bodies are weak in many ways. Not only are we subject to the natural laws of gravity and time and space, we are weakened by sin and its temptations. Our glorified bodies will be empowered by the Spirit that owns us and weaknesses will be no more. There will be no more weaknesses in our body. You know, it, 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 it's really weird when you get old, guys, for you young people. You, one day you can run to the fence, and the next day you can't run to the fence. Your legs don't work like they used to. You know, they did the other day, and I'm going like, I can do this. I used to run track in high school. I ran the 440. 400 meters. Now it was a 440 run in high school. Played soccer. Then I played a little bit of football. And, and, and uh, I could run really well. I could even run in my 30s and my 40s. I'm in my 60s, and I look like that guy on television I used to make fun of. <laughs> it's crazy. But guess what? Your glorified body will have no limitations on it. And, and, and guys, I know what you're thinking. I'll finally be faster. No, remember, there's no jealousy in heaven. You won't be racing in heaven, okay? We will be able to enjoy food, but we will not be driven to its necessity for nourishment or fleshly desires. How do we know this? Luke chapter 24, verses 40 through 30. Jesus eating after His resurrection. Jesus ate after His resurrection. He didn't need to eat it, but He ate. And what did Jesus say? What do we always look at when uh, the Lord's Supper? What does Jesus say to His disciples? I won't drink of this again till when? Not now, not in this life, but he will drink with them again. We will drink with our Lord and Savior forever. You know, um, I always think about, you know, some people will say about, well, Jesus drank wine. Yes, he did. And Jesus said, well, he turned wine into a party so they all could be happy. I said, let me tell you something. I don't have proof of this, but I, I, have, I, have, I have, this is my indication. And this is where I'm going with this, okay? How do you make wine? You make wine. How do you make alcohol? It has to die. Things have to die in order for the alcohol to get in there, right? Is God about death? You think there's going to be any death in heaven? There's no death in heaven. There can't be any of this distilling into alcohol in heaven. And so I believe, Mark Wells believes this, that when he turned that water into wine, it's the same kind of wine we'll drink in heaven. Completely pure with no death in it. Therefore, no intoxication in it. And I believe that everything that God does is for perfect, for our perfect benefit, and yet Satan comes in to, to destroy. Satan always has the counterfeit. I look forward to that day when I enjoy the fruits of the land, but don't have to have it in order to survive.
The bodies we inherit will be more like what God had originally made us to be rather than what we now live in through the weakness of the sinful flesh. The body of believers will be angel-like, but not angels. If you're new to this church, please, please, please don't ever come up to me and say, my dear departed is now an angel. Uh, No, they're not. You have just demoted them. They are not an angel. They are a child of God. They are co-heirs with Christ. Guess what? Angels aren't co-heirs with Christ. You are. The angels cannot even rejoice over their salvation because they weren't given salvation. You and I have repented and given salvation. So we are the sons of this age, the Bible tells us, marry and are given in marriage. So we get we have children. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, attain to that age, and to be uh, to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. You see, so husbands and wives, I know the first time a preacher preached on this, I went out, I was bummed. I left out here and said, wait, I'm not going to be married to my wife? What? Who's going to clean my clothes? And Kathy's was coming out, Glory. <laughs> glory the relationship that we have the most intimate relationship we have that relationship will be with every other Christian that has ever lived and the Old Testament saints as well that love that you have for your wife will be transformed and it will be a mature perfect love that you will have with every other believer as a co-heir with Christ No jealousies, no fighting, no worrying. And so when does this occur? When does this occur? There are three prominent views of when it will occur. We have pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, and post-tribulation. These views address when the rapture will happen in relation to the coming seven years of tribulation period. I will be talking in weeks to come about uh, post-mill, pre-mill, and a-mill. That's for future tense, but... Here, we're talking about the actual uh, point of the rapture. When will it happen? So the pre-tribulation rapture view asserts that the church will be raptured before Daniel's seventh week. That's what we believe here. That's what your pastor believes. They believe Scripture teaches that. And it's known as the tribulation, is the seventh week. Since the entire period of tribulation is the wrath of God, the church must be rescued prior to the tribulation to fulfill God's promise that he made to the church, that it will escape the wrath of God, which we read earlier from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. My God is not a liar. And just as my brothers in the, in the Presbyterian faith who believe that, that uh, God has, has changed his covenant with Abraham, that, that somehow when they rejected Christ as their Savior, therefore it passed to the church, and there is no future place for Israel, those who are, who are a-mill, that believe there is no millennial kingdom. And, and, and I'm here to tell you that God, when He makes a promise, He sticks to it. If He doesn't, then woe be unto us. Is there even salvation for us? But my God made a promise to Abraham. He made a promise to Abraham. He says, you see this? This is what I'm going to give you. He didn't say, Abraham, if you do this, if you accept my son, I'll give you this. He said, I'm going to give you this. And guess what? That land that he has promised has never been given to the nation of Israel until this day. But it will happen. It will happen at the start of the millennial kingdom. 
The pre-tribulation rapture functions as a rescue mission, if you will, by which Jesus delivers His church from the divine wrath of the tribulation. Secondly, the the mid-tribulation rapture view argues that the church will be raptured at the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week. The church goes through the first half of the tribulation, but then is raptured at the midpoint to avoid the most severe wrath of God that characterizes the later period of Daniel's 70th week. So they're saying basically those first three and a half years, you don't have to worry about it. It's not going to be that bad. We're just going to be around when the Antichrist is, is getting his glory. Mid-tribulation perspective does not see the first half of tribulation as a divine wrath. It maintains that the wrath of man and Satan is occurring, but not the wrath of God. Third is the post-tribulation rapture view and asserts that the rapture occurs at the end of the second coming and is the initial phase of Jesus' bodily return. The church, according to this view, which goes through the tribulation period, is snatched into the air to meet the returning Jesus who, when, who then descends to earth with his people. So in this view, the saints from heaven are coming back and those who are alive are brought up. Pre, but, but I want to share with you why we believe here at Grace Harvest uh, and many, many others uh, believe and teach the pre-tribulation viewpoint. Pre-tribulation has the most biblical support. And we believe that it is correct view for several reasons. First... Jesus declares that the church will be removed prior to the hour of trial that is coming to the entire church. Revelation 3.10 Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. That trial is the tribulation period. And God says, I will protect you from it. Jesus promises a reward for the patient endurance of His church. This reward is the one, uh, is that one, and is kept from a unique period. What period is that? The hour of trial and the coming that is coming to the whole world. The rapture is a promise of or reward, if you will, to the church for enduring patiently during suffering for the past two thousand years. The church that endures the trials of this present age will be kept from the special hour of testing for the people that are left here on earth. Second reason, the church goes unmentioned in Revelation chapter 6 through 18. There's no mention of the church in those chapters in the last book of the Bible. The common New Testament term that we see for church is used 19 times in Revelation chapters 1 through 3. 19 times in relation to the historical church of the first century. However, church appears only once more in Revelation in the conclusion of the book, and that's in Revelation 22, verse 16. Nowhere in Revelation chapter 6 through 18 is the church mentioned. Why is this significant? It is unlikely that John would shift from detailed instructions that we saw about the church in Revelations 1 through 3 to absolute silence about the church for 13 chapters if the church will experience the tribulation. If the church will experience the tribulation, surely the most detailed study of tribulation, the the book of Revelation and their events, would include the church's role in this period. But it does not. The church is not mentioned. A pre-tribulation rapture best explains the total absence of the church on earth during these Silent chapters, verses 6 through 18, about the church. Third, 
The rapture is rendered unnecessary if the church goes through the tribulation. Why is there a need for a rapture? If God miraculously preserves the church through the tribulation, why have a rapture at all? If, if, if the rapture occurs in connection with the post-tribulation coming, the subsequent separation of the sheep from the goats in Matthew chapter 25 would be redundant. Separation would have already taken place at the rapture with no need for another. Plus, if all tribulation believers are raptured and glorified just prior to the millennial kingdom, what people will populate the kingdom? Hello? If everybody who's a Christian is raptured up, who goes into the millennial kingdom? Does God make another Adam and Eve and send them in there? No, of course not. He sends all of those who have survived the wrath of God through the seven seal judgments, through the seven uh, trumpet judgments and the seven bowl trumpets and uh, uh, excuse me, bowl judgments, all those judgments. There's 21 judgments coming from God. And, and they survive the, the persecution of the Antichrist. You see those people who are alive, if they got raptured up, they're not going into the millennial kingdom. But those folks who are alive, those who have suffered through all that, will enter into the millennial kingdom and God will rule through Christ and you and I will rule with Jesus. And the Bible says we rule, God, Jesus rules with an iron rod. There will still be sin there. Pastor, how can there be sin? Because these are human beings that go into it. They didn't lose their sin nature. You did when you were resurrected. You did when you came back with Christ. You will not sin. They will sin. And, but God says it will be punished. It won't be like the court systems we have now. There won't be no fancy lawyer in a, going up there with a $1,000 suit saying, but my client, Your Honor. Be none of that. Justice will be rendered. And believe it or not, at the end of that millennial period, those mommies and daddies that entered into the millennial kingdom had children, who had children, who had children, who had children. The Bible says if a man lives 120 years during that time, that would be considered a short life. You see, remember, that's the time that the, the child will play with a serpent and, and not worry about it. That's the time when the lion will day, lay down with the lamb. That's the time when all the weapons of war turn into farm tools. And so that's a time of utter peace. And yet, people say, we just haven't tried the right government. People would all get along if we just had the right government. Uh, hello. These people live under Christ for a thousand years. And the Bible tells us, so many of them rebelled, you can't even count them. I want you to think about that. Jesus is the king of this earth. People live under his just rule, and there will still be more people than you can count that will rebel with Satan when he's loosened that last time for another sermon. The fourth reason I want to give you is that the epistles contain no warnings of an impending tribulation of church-age believers. God's instructions to the church and the epistles contain a variety of warnings, but believers are not warned to prepare for entering or enduring the tribulation period, not once. The New Testament warns vigorously about coming era of false prophets. It warns about ungodly living. The New Testament admonishes believers to endure in the midst of present tribulation. However, there is a silence in Scripture concerning preparing the church for the global and catastrophic tribulation described in Revelation 6 through 18. So, Christian, you don't need to build you a bunker. 
You don't have to have a, a store of ammunition and guns and food to last you for seven years. And first of all, during that time, you're going to be led, if you're here, as you're a non-believer now, and you come to Saving Faith, you're going to be led to the slaughter. There's no mention of a God's army. There's no mention of us taking up the Christian church, taking up arms. As a matter of fact, it's just that they're slaughtered all day long for the sake of Christ. That's hard for us to comprehend, and, and especially with us. You know, this is America. Nobody's going to trample on us. Remember first, God is your king, Jesus is your king, and heaven is your kingdom. You're passing through here. And fifthly and finally, First Lessons 4, 13, 18 demands a pre-tribulation rapture. Suppose that some other rapture view is true. When then would we expect to, what would we expect to find in Thessalonians chapter 4? The reverse of the, currents, the concerns reflected here. The, we would expect the Thessalonians to be rejoicing that their loved ones are home with the Lord and will not endure the horrors of the tribulation. You see? They, they wouldn't be worried about them missing the, the tribulation. They, I, I mean, they, would, they wouldn't be worried about missing the rapture. They would be thankful that they're not going to have to go through the tribulation, but that's not the case. You see, only the pre-tribulation rapture accounts for this grief that they're experiencing. The rapture of the church is a glorious event that we all should be looking for and longing for, not afraid of. But as I said earlier, be afraid if you're here and you don't know Christ. Be, be, be afraid. Because as I walk you through, if the Lord tarries and I walk you through the next nine weeks of this, you're going to see the horrors that are in, are in store for those who do not know Christ as Savior. What say you today? Christian, you're living a life that's holy and pleasing to God and you're looking forward to Him coming back? Is there an urgency in, within you to share the love of Christ with all those that you know and love? And for just a moment, I want to get the attention of anyone here who, who, who doesn't know Christ. Young person, older person, who you've heard about Jesus, you've seen Jesus, maybe you've been disappointed in the way you've had people live their lives in front of you that claim to be Christians. Maybe, maybe you just never, it's a pride issue and you just don't want to surrender. I'm, I'm begging you. Please consider what God has done for you and He's asking you to come to Him. Would you tarry, hoping that He will not come until you have the fun you want to have in this world and life that is fleeting? Or will you come now, fall before a holy God, repent of your sins, turn from your sins, and follow Christ? Father, I thank You so much for the hope that You give us. Father, You are such a loving and caring Father. I, I am a man who loves my children, and yet I, I failed them so many times growing up. And, but you never fail us. I'm a mere man who has struggled in life, and yet I've loved my children the best I could and knew how to do, and yet I still failed. And yet, Father, you never fail. You love us so much, Lord, that you would never leave us, nor abandon us, nor forsake us. You have given us the promise of eternal life. You have given us this word that says, I will come back for you, my church. My son will accept his bride. And I pray you're part of that bridal party. I pray that you are the bride of Christ waiting for your, 
for our groom to come and to receive us unto his own. And Christian, as I pray this for to God this morning, and Lord, you know my heart. I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters. God, that we would strive to live for you. Help us where we fall short, Father. And Lord, there are here people here today, I'm not naive enough to know, and I don't know who they are, but I pray, God, that you would call one. We would see a modern-day miracle this very hour where somebody would cry out to you and ask for forgiveness of their sins, believe in, your, in their heart that Jesus is your Son, that He died for their sins, He rose from the dead, and He sits at the right hand of you this very moment. God, I pray pray that the ones that are on my heart right now and all my brothers and sisters' hearts right now as they're thinking of ones in their own family, people that they love dearly, that if you were to come back today would be left behind. I pray, God, I pray for those that are dear to me, that you would bring them to saving faith. Lord, may you receive the glory for what happens in this place today and the days to come. And I ask this in the precious name of your Son, the one who died for us, Jesus Christ. Amen. Just a moment, I'll be standing up front. This is the time of the service where if God has is, is called you to be His, if you've never made that public that, you, that you're not trusting in your own works to get you to heaven, but you're trusting in Christ and Him alone, you come and you grab this preacher by the hand. As I said in the early service, I was a 23-year-old young man, walked down an aisle, didn't understand all it meant to be a Christian. I was raised in a, in a religion, and in Catholicism, that taught me I had to do all these works. I was so confused when I heard that I had never, ever trusted in Jesus alone for my salvation. I grabbed that preacher by the hand. I said, I don't know what this is all about, but I do know I, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and I can't save myself. And it's been a journey ever since. With ups and downs and valleys, but I tell you, I'm so thankful that God called this boy at 23 years old to saving faith. I pray he does that to you today. Others of you, God has said, this is the place I want you to join. It's not a perfect place full of imperfect people, but people who love Jesus and will love on you. I pray that this is the place that God calls you to, to be part of the membership, to serve him and to serve the local body. If that's it, you come, you let me know. God has called you to follow in believer's baptism. You've never followed Christ in believer's baptism. I pray that you let me make um, let me know about that decision well. And if God has spoken to you way, I can't even imagine that. The Holy Spirit has convicted you. If you want me to pray with you now or after service, myself, Pastor Cal, Pastor Brian are here. Tom is here. We're here to minister to you as you need.